Chapter Eight, Part One of Popular History of Ireland, Book Twelve by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Eight, Part One, O'Connell's Leadership, the Clare Election, Emancipation of the Catholics. A very little reflection will enable us to judge, even at this day, the magnitude of the contest in which O'Connell was the great popular leader during the reign of George the Fourth. In Great Britain a very considerable section of the ancient peerage and gentry, with the Earl Marshal at their head, were to be restored to political existence by the act of emancipation. A missionary and a barely tolerated clergy were to be clothed in their own country, with the commonest rights of British subjects, protection to life and property. In Ireland, seven-eighths of the people, one-third of the gentry, the whole of the Catholic clergy, the numerous and distinguished array of the Catholic bar, and all the Catholic townsmen, taxed but unrepresented in the corporate bodies, were to enter on a new civil and social condition, on the passage of the Act. In the colonies except Canada, where that church was protected by treaty, the change of imperial policy towards Catholics was to be felt in every relation of life, civil, military, and ecclesiastical, by all persons professing that religion. Some years ago a bishop of southern Africa declared, that until O'Connell's time it was impossible for Catholics to obtain any consideration from the officials at the Cape of Good Hope. Could there be a more striking illustration of the magnitude of the movement, which, rising in the latitude of Ireland, flung its outermost wave of influence on the shores of the Indian Ocean? The adverse hosts to be encountered in this great contest included a large majority of the rank and wealth of both kingdoms. The king, who had been a Whig in his youth, had grown into a Tory in his old age, the House of Lords were strongly hostile to the measure, as were also the universities, both in England and Ireland. The Tory party, in and out of Parliament, the Orange organization in Ireland, the civil and military authorities generally, with the great bulk of the rural magistracy and the municipal authorities. The power to overcome this power should be indeed formidable, well organized and wisely directed. The Lord Lieutenant selected by Mr. Canning was the Marquis of Anglesey, a frank soldier, as little accustomed to play the politician as any man of his order and distinction could be. He came to Ireland, in many respects, the very opposite of Lord Wellesley, no orator certainly, and so far as he had spoken formerly, an enemy rather than a friend to the Catholics. But he had not been three months in office when he began to modify his views, he was the first to prohibit, in Dublin, the annual orange outrage on the 12th of July, and by subsequent, though slow degrees, he became fully convinced that the Catholic claims could be settled only by concession. Lord Francis Levinson Gower, afterwards Earl of Ellesmere, accompanied the Marquis as Chief Secretary. The accession to office of a Prime Minister friendly to the Catholics was the signal for a new attempt to raise that no-popery cry, which had already given twenty years of political supremacy to Mr. Percival and Lord Liverpool. In Ireland this feeling appeared under the guise of what was called the New Reformation, which during the summer of 1827 raged with all the proverbial violence of the odium theologicum from Cork to Derry. Priests and parsons, laymen and lawyers, took part in this general politico-religious controversy, in which every possible subject of difference between Catholic and Protestant was publicly discussed. Archbishop McGee of Dublin, the Reverend Sir Harcourt Lees, son of a former English placeman at the castle, and the Reverend Mr. Pope, were the clerical leaders in this crusade. 
Exeter Hall sent over to assist them the Honourable and Reverend Baptist Noel, Mr. Wolfe, and Captain Gordon, a descendant of the hero of the London riot of 1798. At Derry, Dublin, Carlow, and Cork, the challenged agreed to defend their doctrines. Father McGinn, Maguire, Maher, McSweeney, and some others accepted these challenges. Messrs. O'Connell, Scheele, and other laymen assisted, and the oral discussion of the theological and historical questions became as common as town-talk in every Irish community. Whether in any case these debates conducted to conversion is doubtful, but they certainly supplied the Catholic lady with a body of facts and arguments very necessary at that time, and which hardly any other occasion could have presented. The right Reverend Dr. Doyle, however, considered them far from beneficial to the cause of true religion, and though he tolerated a first discussion in his diocese, he positively forbade a second. The Archbishop of Armagh and other prelates issued their mandates to the clergy to refrain from these oral disputes, and the practice fell into disuse. The notoriety of the Second Reformation was chiefly due to the ostentatious patronage of it by the lay chiefs of the Irish oligarchy. Mr. Singe in Clare, Lord Lorton, and Mr. McClintock in Dundalk, were indefatigable in their evangelizing exertions. The Earl of Roden, to show his entire dependency on the translated Bible, threw all his other books into a fish-pond on his estate. Lord Farnham was even more conspicuous in the revival. He spared neither patronage nor writs of ejectment to convert his tenantry. The reports of conversions upon his lordship's estates, and throughout his county, attracted so much notice that Drs. Curtis, Crawley, Magarin, O'Reilly, and McHale met on the ninth of December, 1826, at Cavan, to inquire into the facts. They found, while there had been much exaggeration on the part of the reformers, that some hundreds of the peasantry had, by various powerful temptations, been led to change their former religion. The bishops received back some of the converts, and a jubilee established among them completed their reconversion. The Honourable Mr. Noel and Captain Gordon posted to Cavan, with a challenge to discussion for their lordships. Of course their challenge was not accepted. Thomas More's inimitable satire was the most effective weapon against such fanatics. The energetic literature of the Catholic agitation attracted much more attention than its oral polemics. Joined to a bright army of Catholic writers, including Dr. Doyle, Thomas More, Thomas Furlong, and Charles Butler, there was the powerful phalanx of the Edinburgh Review, led by Geoffrey and Sidney Smith, and the English liberal press, headed by William Cobbett. Thomas Campbell, the poet of hope, always and everywhere the friend of freedom, threw open his new monthly to Scheele, and William Henry Curran, whose sketches of the Irish bar and bench, of Dublin politics, and the county elections of 1826, will live as long as any periodical papers of the day. The indefatigable Scheele, writing French as fluently as English, contributed besides to the Gazette de France, a series of papers which were read with great interest on the continent. These articles were the precursors of many others, which made the Catholic question at length a European question. An incident quite unimportant in itself gave additional zest to these French articles. The Duc de Montebello, with two of his friends, Messrs. Duvergier and Thayer, visited Ireland in 1826. Duvergier wrote a series of very interesting letters on the state of Ireland, which at the time went through several editions. At a Catholic meeting at Ballinasloe, the Duke had some compliments paid him, which he gracefully acknowledged, expressing his wishes for the success of their cause. This simple act excited a great deal of criticism in England. 
the Paris press was roused in consequence, and the French Catholics, becoming more and more interested, voted an address and subscription to the Catholic Association. The Bavarian Catholics followed their example, and similar communications were received from Spain and Italy. But the movement abroad did not end in Europe. An address from British India contained a contribution of three thousand pounds sterling. From the West Indies and Canada, generous assistance was rendered. In the United States, sympathetic feeling was most active. New York felt almost as much interested in the cause as Dublin. In 1826 and 1827, associations of Friends of Ireland were formed at New York, Boston, Washington, Norfolk, Charleston, Augusta, Louisville, and Bardston. Addresses in English and French were prepared for these societies, chiefly by Dr. McNevin at New York and Bishop England at Charleston. The American, like the French press, became interested in the subject, and eloquent allusions were made to it in Congress. On the 20th of January, 1828, the veteran McNevin wrote to Mr. O'Connell, Public opinion in America is deep and strong and universal in your behalf. This predilection prevails over the broad bosom of our extensive continent. Associations similar to ours are everywhere starting into existence, in our largest and wealthiest cities, in our hamlets and our villages, in our most remote sections, and at this moment the propriety of convening at Washington delegates of the Friends of Ireland, of all the states, is under serious deliberation. A fund will ere long be delivered from American patriotism in the United States, which will astonish your haughtiest opponents. The parliamentary fortunes of the great question were at the same time brightening. The elections of 1826 had, upon the whole, given a large increase of strength to its advocates. In England and Scotland, under the influence of the no-popery cry, they had lost some ground, but in Ireland they had had an immense triumph. The death of the generous-hearted Canning, hastened as it was by anti-Catholic intrigues, gave a momentary check to the progress of liberal ideas, but they were retarded only to acquire a fresh impulse destined to bear them, in the next few years, farther than they had before advanced in an entire century. The ad interim administration of Lord Goderich gave way, by its own internal discords, in January 1828, to the Wellington and Peel administration. The Duke was Premier, the Baronet Leader of the House of Commons, with Mr. Huskisson, Lord Palmerston, in the Cabinet, Lord Anglesey remained as Lord Lieutenant. But this coalition with the Friends of Canning was not destined to outlive the session of 1828. The lieutenants of the late Premier were doomed for some time longer to suffer for their devotion to his principles. This session of 1828 is, in the history of religious liberty, the most important and interesting in the annals of the British Parliament. Almost at its opening, the extraordinary spectacle was exhibited of a petition signed by 800,000 Irish Catholics, praying for the repeal of the Corporation and Test Acts, enacted on the restoration of Charles II against the nonconformists. Monster petitions, both for and against the repeal of these acts, as well as for and against Catholic emancipation, soon became of common occurrence. Protestants of all sects petitioned for, but still more petitioned against equal rights for Catholics, while Catholics petitioned for the rights of Protestant dissenters. It is a spectacle to look back upon with admiration and instruction, exhibiting, as it does, so much of a truly tolerant spirit in Christians of all creeds, worthy of honor and imitation. In April, the Corporation and Test Acts were repealed. In May, the Canningites seceded from the Duke's government, 
and one of the gentlemen brought in to fill a vacant seat in the cabinets, Mr. Vesey Fitzgerald, a member for Clare, issued his address to his electors, asking a renewal of their confidence. Out of this event grew another, which finally and successfully brought to an issue the century-old Catholic question. End of chapter 8, part 1. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.